Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with the dear friend and powerhouse, Helena Wasserman. She's on a mission to accelerate the transition to impact and sustainability as the default way of investing and building companies. Her career started at the Clinton Foundation and Ashoka, then moved into impact technology with tech stars and big data for humans. Then she went on to scale top-tier impact, the global ecosystem for impact investors and leaders, and she's an angel investor as well. Helena was founder of the future in 2016, Forbes 30 under 30 in 2017, and one of the 50 most inspirational women in technology in Europe in 2017. In this episode, we talk about resilience, climate tech predictions, what is angel investing and impact investing, understanding natural capital, the importance of biodiversity, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this smooth conversation, thanks to our sound partner, Audio-Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Helena, thank you so much for joining me, and in person, it's always more fun in person. So I wanted to start because you have traveled the world and you've worked for some incredible companies, so let's walk through the journey to date. Hi, Steph. Very happy to be here with you today. Yes, so I'll walk you through how I got started. It's not the typical path. I guess nobody has a typical career path, but here we go. So I actually started my career in New York City by working at the Clinton Foundation. And I was always very passionate about impact. I studied environmental science for my bachelor in New York City as well. And then what I did is actually uh, realized that back then, you know, the nonprofit sector was quite just difficult to navigate. And I thought the best way to have an impact is actually to do business and to build companies. So I decided that would be the way I would make a difference. So I left the nonprofit and went to business. I went to LSE, uh, studied management, and then I dove into the tech world, which was in 2013, back where it was booming. And back then, so I joined Techstars, the tech accelerator, which is similar to Y Combinator. You know, they're building companies from scratch. Love that. That was so, so fun. And then there I joined Big Data for Humans, which was a big data startup as founding team member. And we basically grew this little startups, which is what brought me out to Asia. So we raised money from Tony Fernandez, the founder of AirAsia, the biggest airline, low cost airline out here. So that's what brought me to Singapore six years ago. And there I did that for a while, but of course it was not very uh, meaningful in the sense that we were, you know, it was a big data engine for retail. And so we were essentially selling more stuff to people, which is not really aligned with my values, even though it was absolutely fascinating in terms of understanding how to grow a business. So when the Australian bushfires happened, it was February 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So I decided to stop that and basically went back to sustainability and impact. So that's how I started uh, back to impact. And what we did is basically invest as an angel sustainability investor, backing companies in climate and food. So that's what I've been doing. And then I joined Top Tier Impact, which is a big network of 600 impact investors and sustainability leaders, grew that out to 26 cities in the world. And yeah, and that takes me to today. Yeah, it's such a colorful career that you've had and and beautiful journey in so many different places. And I was always fascinated by that and uh, definitely going to dive into more about a couple of things that you brought up. But first, you know, obviously, I've known you for a few years and feel very blessed to call you one of my dearest friends. And uh, yeah, we've had quite the journey of the last couple of years. So I would love for you to share a little bit about some of the difficulties you've overcome and the practices and tools that have helped you to become this confident, amazing woman that you are now, because 
because obviously life is not without its hardships and you've definitely been through enough of those. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, for sure. And a few things happened in my life. I lost my brother when I was 27 to suicide, got divorced one year into my marriage. So there's like a few things that happened that were like challenging for sure. But I think what I've learned is that resilience is a muscle and that the more you practice, you know, falling, getting back up, I also failed a business. And the more you you get into that habit of being like, okay, it's not really about failing, it's more about trying. So, you know, you pick yourself back up once and you're like, oh, that wasn't so difficult. And then you kind of get into the habit of just like, okay, fine. Like it's not a big deal. Let's just keep trying. So I think that, I think just like realizing that it's more about trying and trying again, as opposed to, you know, not doing things perfectly. So that for me has been a really good lesson. Then as you know, I love running. (laughs) So running is one of my, one of my tools to just clear my mind. And uh, another one I would say is, uh, I mean, everybody says that one, but I think it's actually not that easy to actually do it, which is actually just taking space in the morning, you know, before everybody's awake, just to meditate, just to sit there, look in the sky, like not, not look at your phone or just have a bit of space early, early in the morning, I think are very powerful tools. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love that idea of resilience as a muscle and that's something that we can actually build because I think a lot of the time the thing that stops people from taking the bold and the scary steps that you've taken in, you know, some might kind of view it like that is that they're just scared of failure. But if you're, if you kind of start to remove that failure mindset and look at it more as you're building resilience, (laughs) it's a complete reframe. And I think that's really beautiful. So I really, I I love that philosophy. And uh, obviously you're now moving a lot more into the climate space and tech and investing. So what are your predictions for this year? What do you think we're going to be seeing for 2023? Yes, I'm very excited for this year because it feels things are really shifting in sustainability and climate. There's now so much urgency, so much attention, so many resources going into it. So I would say top four predictions for 2023 is number one is that laws and legislations have changed. So we've seen huge steps happening in Europe, in the US, in Asia as well. And we've seen the US Inflation Reduction Act that was passed that is already shifting, for example, the renewable energy sector. You know, we know that a lot of manufacturing plants are now being set up in the US simply because of the those laws that were passed only a few months ago. So it's amazing to see huge shifts in the market of renewable energy manufacturing in the US right now. So that's an example. We're also seeing, uh, you know, Petrol cars being banned by 2035 in Europe, uh, which is going to create huge shifts in the market as well. So I think laws now are really pushing forward. And so that is shifting the whole, whole market. Then in terms of the cost of climate tech, we've seen that the cost of wind and solar has now gone down 80% over the last 10 years. Uh, which is massive. And that is obviously also driving a lot of investment and a lot of attention to climate tech because now it just makes sense financially. So yeah, so the first one was, you know, laws are really changing and will continue to do so. We're going to see a huge push from government. The second one is that the cost of climate tech has gone down significantly and will continue to do so. The third one is another exciting one, which is talent. So because we've seen a lot of tech layoffs recently, also we're going through a little bit of a crypto winter. So a lot of people now are looking for jobs and coming to sustainability. So we've seen so many new jobs, you know, whether it's investing jobs, whether it's in jobs in corporations, you know, every single corporate in the world now needs to build the ESG team. So there's just so much talent that is 
going to climate. So, so I think that's a massive shift from last year where we were not really thinking along those lines yet. And then the fourth one that I'm seeing is a big focus on biodiversity. So that's one that I'm particularly excited about, which I can tell you a bit more later. So yeah, I think right now we've had a big focus on carbon, on CO2 emissions, which is very important, but now we're actually moving the focus as well on biodiversity and how to preserve flora and fauna. And I think we're going to see more of a focus on that in the next few years, because obviously water, clean air are going to become ever more precious. And now these assets, like nature is really going to become an asset. And so that's something that we're seeing as well. So yeah, to sum it up, so cost of climate tech going down, government taking real decisions, laws are changing, talent is coming. So very exciting year ahead of us. Yeah, it's really good to have that positive reframe and to focus on things that are actually going to be happening. And it's so great to hear that there's lots of positivity in the space as it's really easy to fall into eco-anxiety and doom and gloom. So a big part of what you do is angel investing. So how did you even get into this and what does it really mean to be an angel investor? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, being an angel investor is also being part of the solution because as you know, there's a lot of information out there about all the issues and there are huge issues that need to be solved. But what we, we've seen is often with all this negativity, people get into, they freeze. They don't get into action because they think that it's too late anyway. We're going to die anyway. And the world is going to blow up anyway. So basically they kind of give up and, uh, sustainable angel investing came as a solution of like things that can actually be done today, like difference you can actually make with your capital. And so that's why it came as a really important solution. And that's why I got involved in that. So basically angel investing is super simple. Initially, when I was younger, I always thought that, you know, to get started as an investor, you need to have millions in the bank, but actually you don't. To be an angel investor, you can start by investing as little as $10,000, $5,000 into companies and actually making a difference. And then if you think about, you know, private markets versus public markets, you know, when you're, when a company is listed and you buy shares, it's great, but you're basically just changing ownership because there's already, you know, a lot of attention on that company. But when you invest a company in a company when it's private at seed stage, there you're really making a difference with your capital because you're taking a chance on something that is way more risky. And so, so that's another reason why angel sustainability angel investing makes sense and why it's, it's high impact with your money. So when you think about the good your money can do, sustainability angel investing is definitely a big part of that. And what I would say, like three things to get started as a, as an angel investor is one is understanding what is your edge, you know, what value are you bringing? Why would people take your money? So in my case, I thought that for me, my edge was my network that I would bring in, you know, I would make other connections to investors. I would, you know, really be, that would be like, that was the value that I was bringing on. So whatever is your background, it could be your expertise on a specific sector. So think about what is your edge? What is your value added on top of your money? And then the third thing is deal flow is not so, you know, getting the investment opportunities takes a little bit of time, but I would say that's not really the hardest part because there's lots of investment opportunities everywhere. It's more about getting into the companies that, you know, everybody wants to invest in. So how do you get into, you know, the deal flow that is, it's hard to get into, and that comes with a little bit of time. And then the the third thing to get started, I would say as simple as get started. <laughs> so, you know, it's easy to get a little bit lost into overthinking, overly researching, but the best way to get started is really to learn by doing. 
and you will make mistakes and you will might lose a little bit of money. But at the end of the day, it will be way cheaper than doing an MBA. And so I always recommend, you know, instead of signing up some expensive degree to just whether it's starting a company or starting to invest to just get started and uh, and learn by doing. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really a nice way to to think about it and to just have that experimental mindset and, you know, obviously don't invest more than, you know, <laughs> than you are willing to lose a little bit, um, especially in the beginning. But, okay, so say if, uh, okay, they're ready to get started, they, they want to, you know, they've got a certain amount that they're willing to play with in that sense. How do they start finding these deal flows? And then how do they actually assess some of these companies? Like when you're looking at potentially an investor deck, like what is it that you're looking out for that would make you invest in one company over another? Yeah, that's a good question. So in terms of finding the right investment opportunities, the best way is to attend demo day of accelerators, you know, like Antler, like Entrepreneur First, like Techstars, like Y Combinator, you know, attending these events. A lot of them happen actually online. So you can actually attend from all over the world. You don't need to be specifically in a city to be able to attend these. So just signing up to these and you can do that by just, you know, signing up on their website. And then in terms of, you know, knowing what to invest in, well, it takes a little bit of time to understand the due diligence process, which is about looking at the traction, about the team, about the market. So we would have to have a bit of a deep dive into that specifically. But what I would say is the more presentations you see, the more decks you review, the better you get at it. You know, the more you start seeing patterns, you start seeing what are the winning teams, what are the winning parameters. So I would say, yeah, get started in terms of reviewing presentations. That would be my advice. Awesome. Thank you so much. And what are some of the companies that you've actually invested in over these last few years that you've been doing this? Yeah, so I did a few, I looked into a few different sectors. One was mental health. Um, So that's obviously a sector I care about particularly because I had a brother who had mental illness. So it's always been something that I've been quite sensitive to. And that falls a little bit outside sustainability, but not really because it's part of health. So mental health, I invested in a digital pill to fight depression. So that was quite an interesting one because if you have been depressed yourself or if you've been in touch with somebody who has been depressed, you know, all the medication that is prescribed usually has really, really bad side effects. So people that take depression pills, they usually say that their whole moods are very, you know, there's basically no, no mood swings, which means they're not happy, but they're not, I mean, they're not sad, but they're not happy either. It's very, they're quite numb. So people complain about that. And basically this digital pill, which is basically a little digital pill that you put right under your skin. So it's very surface level. It doesn't, it doesn't harm the head. But what it does, it actually sends radio waves to the prefrontal cortex, which is where the depression happens. And it only sends waves there and not to the rest of your body, which means you have no side effects. So it's supposedly one of the first digital pills that will have absolutely no side effects on the rest of your mood, of your hormones, of how you feel. And it would just be attacking the depression directly. Of course, this digital pill is still in development. As you know, the sector takes a lot of time to get to market, but it's going really well and should be available in 2024. Wow. That's so fascinating and such an exciting time, I think, with technology fusing in to actually solving some of these issues like mental health, which is especially post-COVID is just so much more, you know, intense and also just luckily 
it's becoming a little bit more destigmatized. So I'm really excited to hear about solutions like this. What are some of the other companies that you have also invested in? And just, I forgot to say, so the name of the company is Inocosmos and the founder is Mehron Ribetz, great, great Israeli founder. So yes, that's that. And then in terms of the rest of my investments, I've done some alternative protein investments, invest in a great Asia Pacific focus alternative protein fund. The general manager is uh, Mikhail Klar. And they're investing in everything from plant-based to cell-based to fermentation technologies, all alternatives to meat. So that was a really cool one that I did a few years ago and helped raise capital for that one as well. And then there's a few other ones, mostly in food and in climate. Yeah, very cool. Thank you for sharing. And so impact investing, how does this compare to angel investing and how has it sort of grown over the last decade? Like, could you kind of help us navigate to understand a little bit between the differences or are they also kind of the same thing? Yeah, no, excellent question. So, I mean, these words, impact investing, climate investing, sustainability investing, they're all used a little bit as synonyms. But I would say in terms of how the sector has evolved over the last 10 years is that initially it was much more led by government by nonprofit and by a type of finance that we call catalytic in the sense that it was funding that were was raised, but they were not expecting huge financial returns. So it was very risky capital. That was impact investing 10 years ago. Now, the way it's evolved is that it's actually become much more profitable because markets have developed, because the cost of technology has gone down, because legislation has changed. So all the things that we mentioned earlier. Now, because of such an urgency as well, all these solutions are now huge opportunities to make money. Uh, While before they were very risky, very frontier, now it's really about building solutions that everybody will use and that will transform entire industries and economies. And so right now it's changed a lot in terms of the type of returns that you can expect. Mm, Okay, that's really interesting. And so now when you look at impact investing, what percentage in general? I mean, maybe you have some statistics you can pull on or give us like a little bit of an understanding about how the money has shifted and is there going to be a point where, you know, it won't make sense anymore to not invest? Or are we close to that tipping point where it will make sense to not invest in companies that aren't actually making impact or aren't trying to solve for the world's problems? I don't think we're there yet, but do you see that that might be somewhere we might get close to in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I think today you're seeing, you know, board of directors have requirements that are in line with sustainability. So actually right now it's harder to raise capital if you don't have this, these ESG environmental social governance criteria in place, it's much harder to raise capital. So it's more becoming like a push from investors that they're requiring and they're becoming more and more sophisticated in that sense. And so I think it's going to become, you know, just standard. This is how you should build a business. This is how your supply chain should look like. This is how your board of directors should look like. You know, it's just going to become the way to do business because those standards will be normalized. And right now it's kind of like in some countries, it's a bit of a nice to have, but in other countries, there are some laws that are in place saying, no, no, this is required. You know, it's required in UK, for example, to have, you know, diversity on your board. So, you know, the more time goes forward, the more these laws will become the norm everywhere. So yes, I think definitely it will be. I think, yeah, it's obviously a very interesting time for the investment landscape. So 
a lot of people are talking about now we're going to be going into a recession and that it's getting more difficult to fundraise. So there's companies out there or people that are looking to sort of invest or, or companies that are wanting investment. Like what is your advice to them right now of how to navigate that? And is it true? Are we seeing a downturn and is it becoming harder to fundraise or is it just that the way that investors are looking at investments have changed? So it's definitely true that it's harder to fundraise right now. I have an example, actually. There was a company I was going to invest in and I presented to my group of investors to support and to to put money in and uh, the response was very slow. And so we've actually decided with that entrepreneur, which is a sustainability entrepreneur that you know, Steph, to actually pause and you know pick things up in a few months, seeing how things go. So it is a very difficult climate to fundraise right now. That's fact. That being said, if we look at history, in previous recessions, we've had some of the most successful companies being built. Airbnb was launched during the last recession, for example. And so I still think it shouldn't stop us because it's just about finding their gaps. It's just about finding you know, what needs to be built within this climate. It might have you know, to, to pivot and find other angles, but we have to remember that that has happened throughout history. Best, most incredible companies were built during recessions. So always keeping that in mind, but it is harder. Of course it is, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a good reframe as well and and something to focus on for people. Um, And so let's move into natural capital now. What is it and how does it really work? So in terms of natural capital, you may know that the UN set some goals that by 2030, basically to reverse the destruction of nature, there are a few things to know. One is that we need to protect about 30% of forest ecosystems and 30% of ocean ecosystems to come back to a level of, of balance in nature, so to reverse the current destruction of nature. Right now, in terms of forest ecosystem, we've protected about 17%, so we have 13% to go. Uh, and then for ocean, we've protected about 10%, so we still have 20% to go. So these are based on science, based on you know, reversing the current destruction of nature. So that's really important. And then what we're seeing is that, as we said, nature is certainly seen as an asset. So we're seeing, okay, how can we quantify? How can we quantify how much CO2 is absorbed? How can we use that? How can we make that even a financial tool? So I think a lot of, uh, you know, I know at COP27, it was a big part of, of the discussion there as well. So we're going to see, you know, people also call, talking about biodiversity credit. You know, we know about carbon credits, but biodiversity credits are, are new. So I think because also carbon credits are very controversial right now, there's a lot of scandals, a lot of carbon credits that are not done properly and that have been very bad reputation for the whole sector, which is a bit unfair because some of them are, are done well, but I think the whole sector needs to be revamped, needs to be optimized, needs to be, the standards need to be raised and, and it's happening now in terms of carbon credits. Biodiversity credit is still new, so we're going to see a lot of focus on that just because, again, it's so important and we focus so much on CO2 emissions, which is super important, but we haven't focused as much on biodiversity preservation and regeneration. So, so that's why I've made it one of my focuses this year and for the following years to, to be able to raise capital for conservation, biodiversity, because, yeah, it's just going to become ever more important for all these reasons. 
biodiversity credits and biodiversity preservation is so critical and it is something that more and more you hear people talking about that yes there is climate change yes we have to address the carbon problem but we need to start actually protecting biodiversity around the world and i know there's already a couple of projects that you're really excited about and that you want to support moving forward so maybe you can share a little bit about like in practice what a biodiversity conservation project might look like absolutely happy to so i'm at the early days of my journey in conservation. So I will share what, what I have learned so far. So what I've noticed is, um, so let's say you want to have carbon credits. First, you need to, to buy land. Then you need to work that land. And then you need to, you know, basically list that land so that it becomes available for carbon trading. So what I've noticed is a lot of entrepreneurs actually need capital to buy land, you know, to just get started on a project. And so that's where I think I can add some support in the sense of raising philanthropic donation to actually support these entrepreneurs to buy land and then to, you know, work it and add more trees and, and make it in a way that is organic and so on. And so what I'm doing is, uh, so Barney Swan, uh, who's an explorer, you know, the son of Robert Swan, he started this nonprofit called Climate Force. And that's exactly what he did. So he grew up actually in Australia, close to the oldest rainforest in the world, uh, the Daintree Rainforest. And he decided he was going to buy some land to basically, you know, regenerate reforest parts of the forest that are in existence today. And so that's a very, you know, simple, easy project, buying land, planting trees. He's also, the whole project is tech enabled. So it's geotagged. He's also using LIDAR technology to actually make sure that, you know, everything's working and that things are actually being tracked instead of just, you know, guessed how much CO2 is being absorbed. And so that's an example of a project that I'm supporting right now. And that's why I'm raising capital for this uh, by running my first marathon. So that's an easy, you know, easy solution using, you know, community fundraising to raise capital. And uh, yeah, it's my first one. So I I will tell you how it goes. (laughs) It's a work in progress, but um, it feels like it's it's an easy one and one that is within reach. And then, of course, you know, this is just the beginning of, of a multi-decade project. So obviously, Barney's going to be, you know, active on this for many years. And so I intend to support him also with introductions, with, you know, finding him more long-term financial partners and so on. So that's, that's one that I'm starting right now. Yes, thank you. Thank you for giving us the example. Great to have clear examples like that. And obviously, big fans of Barney. And uh, we've actually interviewed him on the podcast previously as well. So, if you're interested to hear more from Barney, you can look up that episode. And uh, Helena actually runs a weekly newsletter called The Sustainability Shot, which is fantastic. It's a a great summary of climate news and, and what's happening in tech. And so, I guess I'm curious what are the best resources that you love to read? Like, where are you getting the information and what? publications or or places do you really enjoy that research because you do such a great summary thank you yeah i've been really enjoying reading all this material and putting this newsletter together which has a focus on solutions so again like we were saying earlier okay what's being done what's working how can we do more of that and focus on that instead of the the extent of the problem because if we think about 
whoever made a big difference before, whoever changed the world always had some crazy vision that nobody believed in that was like totally idealistic and it made no sense at the time, but then it worked out. So that's the purpose of why it's so positive and optimistic. It's not because we're not aware of the issues. It's not because we're not realistic of the issues, but it's because let's focus on what's working and scaling that. And then we're going to get somewhere instead of freezing of panic. So that was the first thing. And then in terms of, I think the best resource out there is um, in terms of news, I really like Bloomberg Green. I think they do an amazing, amazing job at, you know, summarizing every day what's happening. So I love Bloomberg Green. That's more like a mainstream news source. And then another one that I love, which is a thought leader, an entrepreneur, which I have a lot of admiration for, is Lubomila, the founder of Plan A. She has an amazing weekly newsletter. And she also has incredible LinkedIn content that she posts every day, several times a day. I don't know how she does it. So I really, really enjoy her content. So those are the main two that I read the most. Uh, yeah, so Bloomberg Green, mainstream, and then Lubomila, founder of Plan A, is absolutely amazing in terms of her content. Great. Thanks for sharing. Uh, and if you could go back in time and give yourself like one piece of advice, what would it be? So I'm 35 today. I'm, I'm going to rewind 10 years back. When I was 25, I wish I would have not be overthinking as much and not be so insecure. So yeah, those are the two things I would tell myself. Helena, be confident, get in action, stop thinking too much, just do it. You'll learn as you go and you'll make mistakes and it's fine. And you, you'll end wherever you want to go anyway. So I think back then I spent a lot of time writing, thinking, imagining, creating different scenarios in my head instead of actually doing things. And today I feel like I'm in action mode. But if I knew that when I was 25, like I'm seeing environmental activists that are like 18, 19, 20, 21, I think they're following that. They're not thinking too much. They're just going for it and they're making mistakes and that's fine. So that would be 10 years ago, I would have said, be more confident and don't think too much. Just try it out. Yeah, I absolutely love the getting in action and being in action. I think it's the best way to learn and to get clarity and to figure stuff out. And yeah, I just, it's a beautiful philosophy. So thanks for sharing. And how do you think we can live wide awake? Mm, I like the depth of your questions. How can we live wide awake? I would say just, you know, having your, your values clear and uh, being able to go back to them on a maybe not daily, but let's say weekly basis, you know, whatever you want to stand for so that you notice when you're off track, because obviously that, that happens. And then whatever you're doing, once you're, you know, you feel like you're being able to live those values to be able to throughout the day have these little moments of pause. So whatever might be happening or not happening, good or bad day, exciting, unexciting day to be able to so throughout the day, stop several times, just look around, breathe, smile, just little things. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably the best, the best way to just actually notice what's happening. And uh, it's unrelated to how, again, like how well your day is going, how much you've been productive or not, how much you nailed your to-do list or not, how much you sold or not, or how much you've advanced on something you want to reach. It's just, oh, look up, pay attention, notice. I think that that really helps me. Mm, yeah, I love that idea of having those little mindful micro moments, uh, no matter what's going on. So yeah, beautiful 
way for us to live wide awake. Well, thank you so much, Helena, for joining us and for sharing. I learned a lot, which is always fun. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks again. Thank you, Steph. That was so fun. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Helena. Firstly, resistance is a muscle and it's something we all have the power to train and grow. Secondly, it's an exciting time for the climate movement with lots of positive changes coming from all sides. We can all choose to be part of it no matter where we are in life. And thirdly, let's get in action and just do it. Whatever it is that you've been wanting to learn as you go and don't overthink. curious what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into i'd love to hear from you you can find me at stephel dixon or at live wide awake if you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us consider subscribing and supporting i hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken and until next time live wide awake